This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Hello, everyone, and very much welcome to another Breaking Banks Europe session. Uh, this is episode number 196. It's news from the fintech front, and we've got a couple of distinguished guests for you today. Uh, Jason Mikola, welcome to the show. Don, thank you so much for having me. Uh, great to be be here for the first time. Great to have you here. And we've got Mary uh, Wisniewski, uh, all the way from Vegas, Good to hear oh, from Los, Los Angeles. Oh, Los Angeles. I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> you're like going to Vegas. That was it. Shows. Yeah. <laughs> you're not there yet. Please, let's not spread the memo. I live in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. So thanks for joining, Mary. Great that you're here. Um, also the first time. Jason, we're having a first time experience together. <laughs> yeah, great to have you here on the show. Um, I'm looking forward to, to have a chat with you about everything that's going on in fintech uh, uh, over the past week and how you interpret the news uh, and definitely like to uh, exploit our uh, Europe uh, American angle here uh, that we have got this uh, as a unique uh, session here today. Um, yeah, Mary, uh, uh, you work for Cornerstone Advisors. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about what you do there? Yeah, so I am an editor at large for Cornerstone Advisors. I help shape their content and um, do a newsletter called Finteching with Mary and do a lot of panels, but yeah, just helping shape fintech content, podcasts, videos, and um, short form stories. Great. So you're way deep into the industry. And so we should, oh, should yeah. definitely be able to extract a couple of really interesting <laughs> insights. <from you. laughs> yeah. Great to have you. Thanks. Uh, and Jason, uh, people might know you from the Fintech Business Weekly. Uh, what else are you up to? Yeah, so in addition to writing and publishing at Fintech Business Weekly, I also do advising and consulting in the bank and fintech space, um, really across different verticals and geographies. So, I mean, you know, my it's, it's interesting. This is Breaking Bank Europe, but you have two Americans here. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll do our best. We'll do our best to live up to the high expectations. Yeah. Um, I do uh, also work with clients in the UK, Saudi Arabia, you know, Mexico, and Latam. So I really like to think I have like a bit of a global banking perspective now. Great. Well, I think I really appreciate the outside in view that you might bring here on the on the European market as well. So uh, I think I think we should definitely uh, exploit that today. Um, so great, you could join. Um, yeah, first of all, maybe uh, Jason. I think we talked a bit in advance about uh, the, uh, what's going on in the UK with regard to Apple Watch. Uh, I wanted to pick on that uh, if you want. So what, what do you think about that uh, that development that you could actually check your bank balance uh, in the app now? Yeah, so I mean, this I think is is interesting for a number of reasons. For for listeners who you know didn't catch the the story, um, you know, Apple Wallet in the UK. Uh, is now leveraging open banking to allow users to view their current account for any American listeners as a checking account uh, balance directly within Apple Wallet. Um, you know, in in other geographies, specifically in the U.S., Apple has made 
uh, further pushes into financial services through Apple Card, which is a credit card in partnership with my former employer, Goldman Sachs, uh, as well as Apple Cash, uh, which is both a peer-to-peer payment mechanism as well as functionally a prepaid debit card with bank partner Green Dot. Um, Also acquired, if I'm remembering this correctly, Credit Kudos, which was a UK-based uh, sort of credit scoring, social rewards, co- credit scoring, co- yeah, exactly. Credit credit scoring that used open banking data to to sort of compute uh, and help underwrite for loans. So, I mean, clearly Apple is making a very strong push into financial services. This, I think, it's interesting because it's taking, um, you know, the the most common task that somebody does when they open their banking app. So in the UK, that'd be like whatever, Monzo or Lloyd's or HSBC, and instead of needing to open their banking app to do that task, which is, you know, what's my balance? You know, how how many quid do I have in my wallet? Um, they can now <laughs> do it directly within the Apple wallet. Uh, presumably, this is a precursor to, to other capabilities that are enabled by open banking and PSD2. Um, yeah. You know, makes perfect sense alongside the ability to store payment credentials and pay for things in Apple wallet, right? So on the one hand, like, from a UX perspective, this should be a win for users. You know, why open my banking app if I can just open Apple Wallet or you know integrate it? You know, you can imagine other integrations before we hopped on. You know, Mary was was talking about the idea of surfacing your your bank balance or maybe your credit card balance before making a transaction to encourage you know maybe more thoughtful spending behavior. So I imagine for for Apple, you know, this is a perhaps relatively minor. UX enhancement, but I suspect it's the first step on a longer journey of pulling more banking, not just information, but banking functionality from the underlying bank and into Apple's UX and Apple's ecosystem. Yeah, I think it could be quite major, right? So it's in that, that it actually takes the, the eyeballs away from the banking apps and the interactions that you might have with your bank uh, because they're also t- checking the account balance is still one of the major reasons to actually be in touch with your bank. Uh, what's your take on this, Mary? Yeah, I was just thinking, well, I have two thoughts there. To your point, um, yeah, I wonder if, you know, I remember rewind the clock, like, I don't know, seven years ago, banks would say they're they're shared, they're shared customers of Mint. It would be like, it wouldn't cannibalize it because people would log into Mint and then have follow-up questions like, is this true? <laughs> Like, let me let me get into my bank account. But I wonder, you know, with this Apple thing, I wonder if it will um, drive less engagement directly with the mobile banking app. But I also wonder, you know, what what effect it will have on consumers spending. Um, you know, there's the maybe it could make someone take a pause on buying something. But also, it's like a lot of people still don't like log in to find their balance because it's so low, right? So it's like, that's yeah. a psychological barrier. So like for that kind of person to then see the balance that they might not be check- checking, I mean, I wonder I wonder what happens then. Yeah, whether you could nudge people to actually be more cautious in their spending or other ways of actually supporting them there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah quite interesting, I think, to, to see what that could bring. Um, um, what do you, do you think, Jason, that actually is also part of the intention behind this, uh, uh, or is that maybe circumstantial? I mean, at, at this point, I would probably say circumstantial, but I mean, there are other data points to suggest that that Apple may take a slightly different approach to um, 
know, how consumers interact with their finances than than perhaps traditional banks would. And and the example I would point to is, you know, the Apple Card, which is a credit card in the U.S. Um, the app, the UX to select a payment amount functionally encourages users to to pay more in order to pay less interest. And I think if you contrast that with the typical, you know, sort of typical bank approach, which would be, you know, this is your minimum payment. So it's like the smallest amount that you're legally required to pay. And this is the due date. You know, if you want to pay more than that, you can pay your statement balance or some arbitrary amount. Um, so I think that there's there's some evidence that that Apple is taking, you know, a quote unquote more like customer friendly or uh, encouraging financial health in a way that that you know historically establishment financial institutions haven't. You know, could what they're doing here in the UK with Wallet, you know, be uh, consistent with that or a first step on building, you know, building some kind of like PFM, a personal financial management tool that that surfaces mm-hmm. some of this information. It could be. I mean, the the open banking in in Europe and in the UK in some regards is substantially more advanced or or I guess in a sense more stable than the US, given that that rulemaking to govern that is happening right now, actually. Sure. Well, maybe not if the government shut down, but it should be happening right now. Um, so you you could imagine Apple making a play to build, you know, build out some of those capabilities within wallet uh with access to that that underlying data that they yeah. can get through open banking. In the States at least, Apple keeps touting its like card and its savings product with Goldman Sachs as a, as a play for financial health being like you can move the credit card points or whatever. What, mm-hmm. What's their term, Jason? It's not points, but the point is it being, a reward, a daily cash back daily or daily cash. cash. Thank you. Yeah. 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 So you can like just funnel that straight into your savings and that's they're marketing it as that's a financial health thing. But you know, the rhetoric about Apple years ago was just like, oh, what if they could do you know, the fitness trackers, like what if they do that similar concept for your money? I mean, I think that really remains to be seen, but I, I, I'm really interested in what they'll do from a PFM yep. or a budgeting or just more a mindful spending perspective. And I think it's also interesting to see that because we've seen a lot of PFMs come to the market over the past uh, years uh, when open banking was the big promise. I think this could also be the big killer uh, of all these independent uh, platforms that try to you know, become the intermediary, like the money supermarket kind of idea where, you know, uh, all these independent platforms are uh, uh, would have a tough job actually fighting uh, Apple with this these kind of features and data. Totally. No, I think that's right. I mean, the, the PFM space has had a long history of like, is this a company or is this a feature? Mm-hmm. And then you see, you know, incumbents either acquire or build their own um, tools that answer kind of similar questions. I mean, I think something that's interesting about Apple, you know, given their control of the hardware itself, the software layer, the operating system, and a lot of the services that go along with it, you know, every time we see a story like this, it tends to touch off a round of, oh, is Apple becoming a bank? I mean, first of all, in the United States, like legally, from a regulation perspective, that's not even really possible. But more importantly, I don't really think that's what Apple wants to do. It, it, you know, Apple tends to focus on being a platform business where either what it's offering 
encourages users to be further locked in and spend more in that a- Apple ecosystem, you know, and or charging a sort of toll, which is what Apple Pay does, at least in the U.S. market, where every credit transaction has a 15 basis point fee that goes to Apple, and every debit transaction, I think, is half a cent. So it's like, do I think Apple actually wants to hold that savings account or hold the credit risk of issuing a credit card? Not really, but by controlling the UX layer, you know, are there, you know, is there data that Apple's accruing? Are there additional revenue streams that Apple can accrue by by having that sort of platform without having the annoying responsibility of actually running a bank? Exactly. I think they're in a really interesting space. Yeah. They are. And I, you know, I opened an account through them and I was fascinated, sadly, because this is I'm fascinated by the customer service of a quasi-bank product, but um just even like I was like texting or messaging with a customer service thing. But I remember I was trying to pay off the card for the first time. And it was saying like my payment would take 11 days. So whoever I was talking, I was like, something's weird here. But also the customer service person is like, did you link a checking account? I'm like, yes, I, yes. But, and then he was like, you need it. And I, and he's like, do anything other than that. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like what? And he's like a debit card. And I'm like, oh, does he not realize <laughs> the debit and checking is linked? So then I was like, what is going on with this customer service anyway? So funny. Uh, they have some spare people in another department, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> interesting experience. Cool. And I think uh, it's quite interesting to see that. I think, and let's say one of the one of the potential consequences of these kind of developments is that that you know banks get pushed back into the value chain uh, and become less visible. And that's of course why we're talking about things as open banking, for example, or open banking, but also embedded banking or embedded finance. But also they make strikes back, right? So I think uh, Mary, you had an interesting example of uh, an action by uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what what you see that they're doing now to actually uh, enhance their offering further into the market? Well, you know, we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, they they partnered with. Why am I always wanting to say the wrong word, Jason? Gusto, gusto, gusto. gusto. Settled on that. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, to do like payroll um, for small and medium businesses. And I'm just fascinated by this for two reasons. One, this big bank is partnering with a fintech company and I, it's just not that common from, from Chase's perspective. And two, small business banking has been really a sleepy area. I, you'll hear a lot of people say Amex and PayPal like and Square own the market, but you also hear there's so many banks in the US and they want, you know, they want to grow their deposits, they want to capture the small businesses. And yet you don't really see any examples of this. So I'm like, I'm just drawn to this because here's a huge bank doing something for businesses. And you just that's not the most typical thing you hear about. But so you're you're a bit skeptical whether it's going to succeed if, if I'm I always skeptical if anything's <laughs> going to succeed. <laughs> Yeah, and so what is that mostly on uh, on on the, the the partnership that they have with uh, with Gusto, or is it more on the fact yeah. that you are that they are sincere about actually wanting to serve SME customers? I mean, that's an interesting thought exercise. Sincerity in a bank. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't know, but I I I mean, just from the brand alone, it's worth following. Um, two, just just from the fact that it's big bank fintech company partnering, not typical. That's interesting too. And I'm only skeptical because, um, I mean, there aren't so many examples of like 
success, right? Like there's not that many, and this has been going on a long time. And I'm not talking just about small business. I'm talking about anything in fintech and banking. Yeah, true. What's your take on this, Jason? Yeah, I mean, it, it, my initial reaction is it feels like a defensive move, particularly um, given Square's efforts to move from, you know, the sort of really like mom and pop SMB further up market. I mean, you know, I think that to, to Mary's point, you know, you haven't really seen many banks try to innovate in the services they're offering to small businesses. I mean, it tends to be, you know, here's here's a checking account, you know, maybe if you're at a certain size, here's a, you know, a business credit card. Um, Square has done, I think, quite a bit of interesting development in that space and gives merchants reasons to consolidate different capabilities onto Square's platform. So, I mean, I think one of the really interesting examples is like, okay, if you're using Square for payment processing, you know, Square, through its division Square Capital, can better underwrite and offer you a loan because not only of the data they're getting, because they can see your card transaction stream, but perhaps more importantly, because they have sort of first dibs on repayment, and that de-risks Square in writing those loans. So, I mean, that's an example of something Square does that, you know, if you're a mom and pop bakery and you go to JP Morgan Chase and ask for a small loan, I'm guessing that they would tell you to leave. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> Yeah. You laugh. Like, well, also, I yeah. think a lot of small businesses just use credit cards, right? Yeah. Because like yes. the terms yeah. of a small business loan yeah. are like high rates. Yeah. Well, and I, I was uh, just when you were expressing your skepticism, Mary, remembering that at one point the the marquee fintech partnership for JPMC was on deck, and oh, yes. after oh, after yes. yeah. yeah. We probably forget because on deck, you know, collapsed and got sold for like 90 million during the pandemic. But, you know, that was a, a three year partnership from, I think, like 2016 to 2019 that uh, I wouldn't characterize it as particularly successful. So, I mean, I think, you know, when you're talking about a bank at the scale of Chase, you know, uh, I think it it it's hard to find initiatives that that move the needle, um, you know, and and to another point Mary made. Uh, you know, JPMC has a history of acquiring and building their own. They don't have a long history of partnering. So I, I am curious to sort of watch what the uptake is from Chase's SMB clients as far as using this for payroll. If you're a small business and you have employees, you already are running payroll, right? So there needs to be some incentive to switch from whatever your existing solution is I mean, if it's literally writing paper checks, maybe there's a strong enough incentive um, to chase and this partnership with Gusto. So I'll be interested to see sort of how this develops, what the uptake is, yep. and if it if it really works for both sides, both Chase as well as for Gusto. Yeah. And like Jamie Diamond so has been so vocal against like fintech over the years, like, or rather like it's coming for us or whatever. And so like I think that's just an added dimension of why this is feels novel because of his public statements out loud. So like, yeah, again, Chase working with FinTech, notable. And so what if it doesn't work, right? So is there anything, what what would you expect in the market? So do you, do you think that actually indeed SMEs are going to be served by other companies in the long run? Uh, because it's just really hard for uh, these bigger firms, uh, these bigger banks to actually collaborate 
with these kind of platforms or come up with their own solutions to actually serve SMEs properly. Well, what do you think I, about that? I don't know, but if if someone is able, if a company is able, a bank or anybody can just make it quicker for the small business owner, can make anything easier, that I feel like use will be high because, you know, small business owners are using they're getting loans that are expensive and they're doing that because it's quick. They can get cash flow quickly. And that's like one of the biggest things for a small business. So if there's any kind of like truly innovative, helpful thing on that front, I feel like it would succeed. Yeah. I mean, the, there, there are a number of sort of neo bank type companies focused on the SMB space um, and I'm cognizant we're talking about the U.S., but this is a U.S. story. Um, you know, Novo, Blue Vine come to mind. You know, the sort of Merc- Mercury Brex ramp have a little bit of a different segment that they're really aiming for, like venture backed, like scale up kind of companies, not like the bakery, the shoe store kind of thing. Um, again, I think it's like when you're a bank the size of Chase, you know, it's it's hard to move the needle whereas if if you're novo or blue vine and like the only segment you're focused on is smbs you can dedicate a hundred percent of your resources of product management of engineering of partnership to really understanding what are the problems my customers face and what do i need to build build buy or partner to better solve my customers problems Whereas, you know, again, if you're a Chase, if you're a Wells Fargo, it's just, you know, oh, well, we have SMBs because they come into the branch or they've always been our customer. Like, we're, you know, we're not worried about it. So I do think the level of innovation when you're really focused on one specific type of customer and their problem does tend to be different than when, you know, you're a many trillion asset institution. Yeah. And Jason, we didn't even, we didn't even smack talk Finn. Chase, Finn by Chase, Chase by yeah. Finn, whatever. Didn't work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not not successful. Yeah. Uh, it's tough. And of course, it's also tough because we know that the regulators are very uh, much on top of these firms as well. Uh, and uh, also because of that, we might actually see some funny things like, uh, for example, Chase UK also blocking uh, crypto transactions uh, recently announced in the news. Uh, Jason, you picked this one up. Uh, what, what, what do you see? Where do you see this heading? Yeah, so I thought this was interesting for for a number of reasons. I mean, Chase um, and their expansion into the retail banking sector in the UK. Uh, I actually think, you know, without having dug deeply into the financials of it, has been relatively a successful launch, um, which is saying something, right? I mean, the UK banking market is highly concentrated with a handful of incumbents. You know, yes, you have your Monzo, Revolut, you know, Starling, but they tend to focus on or tend to attract customers with, you know, smaller balances that that generate fewer deposits, less revenue. You know, Chase has taken a very aggressive approach to launching in the UK. Um, which is which is consistent with other product launches they've done, right? I remember when they launched their Sapphire Reserve credit card, and like everyone was rushing to sign up for it because the rewards were so. It was like fifteen hundred dollars worth of rewards to sign up. Strategy in the UK has been, you know, uh, high high rates on savings, you know, market market leading rates on savings, and I believe cash back on debit, which is not a thing in the UK. 
So that's a great way to buy customers. It's expensive, and eventually you have to sort of tailor those back. Um, that's why this caught my eye. I mean, you know, stopping customers from buying crypto, and again, this is only Chase's UK customers. Um, you know, on the one hand, you could make an argument that you know they're taking a proactive step to protect their customers from a sector that is rife with scams and fraud and you know numerous complaints of customers you know losing funds you know on the flip side you know, is this is this the right role for a bank versus um banking regulators or other enforcement agencies to protect consumers from this risk when you know these are at this point, legal transactions. If I'm a UK Chase customer and I want to move money, you know, into a crypto exchange, you know, is it appropriate for Chase to be making the decision to block those transactions? So, I mean, I think I see arguments on either side. Um, you know, I think given that Chase is relatively recently chartered in the country, you know, are they getting some regulatory pressure, you know, behind the scenes? And this is a way to um, diffuse that situation. Maybe. I mean, that's speculation, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Those, you're raising all the important questions because, like, but I think the most important one of all of those is, like, what what's at stake when a bank is controlling decisions of, you know, what can happen? I mean, to me, that's um, disturbing. <laughs> Sense, I mean, it's censorship, right? But like, you raise other really great questions too. But yeah, when a when a bank is controlling our destiny, I don't, I don't know. I have, I have follow ups. <laughs> mm. <Yeah. laughs> that is really interesting because you do see that regulators are actually uh, uh, in- increasingly using uh, commercial entities as their basically extension to enforce uh, certain rules in the market. Uh, and I see that on one end, you see that through different means, as in potential uh, higher com- compliance cost because you're under a higher uh, scrutiny, scrutinized regime. Or also, for example, we see that around uh, money laundering uh, mm-hmm. prevention, that the costs at some point become too high and therefore customers get excluded. Uh, and But it's an indirect way of the law basically being enforced where, yeah, at some point uh, the commercial entities have to fold in uh, because they just can't uh, do it on their own uh, under the circumstances. But it's it's definitely, uh, I think, also a very important question that you raised, Mary, whether this is something you would want these entities to do. You know, why aren't the, the, the regulators or policymakers just not calling the shots directly? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the, the AML comparison is an interesting one. Um, because you have two, you have two different public policy objectives. You know, stopping money laundering and the crime that that is facilitated or that the proceeds uh, attached to that are coming from. On the flip side, you usually have uh, regulators, um, politicians pushing for financial inclusion. And Don, to your point, you know, this actually these are actually intention. This the tougher your you know AML. KYC onboarding procedures are increases the likelihood that uh, marginalized customers, you know, may not actually be able to access the financial system, and, and so those things actually end up being in tension with each other. Yep, I totally agree. It's quite tricky, as uh, sometimes also at some point, for the lack of being able to investigate further, you know, whole industries at some point get get excluded. For example. Uh, and this could already be on a reputational uh, level, but uh, um, overall, yeah, this uh, 
you could you could argue whether actually that's that's uh, um, to the point of including customers is really uh, really helpful. Yeah, curious. Uh, so, what do you think, Mary? Where where should this be heading? Do you do you think that these other regulators are going to step up? Because I think this is at least in Europe. I see that the policymakers actually are trying to get more hands off. So probably we'll see more and more activities that uh, the banks are forced to actually take kind of measures indirectly because of policy decisions rather than being enforced directly. I would expect. Because you always hear different things. I, certainly, like banks are being regulated aggressively. Um, I'm curious, you know, how long have we, Jason, how long have we been talking about the CFPB passing the 1033 related to data portability? I mean, it's, it's years. Um, I don't know. Is that supposed to happen this year or next year? I mean, it's just the thing that keeps going. Yeah, so so for for European listeners who aren't familiar, 1033 refers to a section of the Dodd-Frank Act, which was passed after the 2008 financial crisis. It was passed in 2010, so 13 years ago, uh, that calls for consumers to have a data access right. Uh, the CFPB, which is a consumer protection regulator, was in charge of developing the regulations to implement that. And I hear that a rule, a proposed rule should be published in the coming maybe month. But again, given that like the government in the US may or may not be funded or open, plus the oral arguments in the Supreme Court case challenging the CFPB's, challenging the constitutionality of the CFPB's funding mechanism, just like generates this endless cloud of doubt and delays <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah yeah so that's in any case something to look out for uh mary uh yeah for like for the next decade <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> Just, yeah um so Anything else that caught your uh, your mind now? Uh, I think we're we're almost uh, at our time, so I think I'm really curious if you have any last news or perhaps items or companies you want people to look out for uh, in the in the in the coming weeks. Well, you know this this might have happened even in August, but there was um, a new PFM. You know, we've mentioned PFM quite a few times, but you know, one of the things that's happened over the years is like the the traditional definition of that, like budgeting charts, pie charts, you know, yep. really low use, like not mm -hmm. most people don't want it, et cetera. Um, but I, there's a startup that was building something that was like trying to weave in like mindfulness and like, it almost seemed like therapy needs money. And I am really fascinated in general about like therapy and um, money stuff and like how it might work within an app, but also just like I think these things haven't been linked um, deeply, and they ought to be because they're they're tied. Um, so gen that's a general thread that I am yeah. following. Well, wow. no, I, I think that's a really excellent point, and I ascribe part of it to the fact that a lot of people who are building, you know, who work in banking or fintech and work in financial services tend to be, uh, I just call them Excel people, but like they're the charts and graphs people, which to be fair, that's how I want to like analyze my money. But, you know, money, uh, financial services, you know, those, the big decisions, buying a house, sending a kid to school, uh, um, you know, inheriting money, these have very strong emotional components to them, which historically financial service companies and, and the experience of them 
you know, don't don't acknowledge or take into account. So I do think there's quite a bit of interesting opportunity, you know, maybe it's not directly at your bank versus, you know, some sort of financial advisor or financial coach, whatever the right language there is, um, to, to, you know, incorporate that when you're helping somebody make a plan, whether it's about saving, you know, saving to buy a house, whether it's paying down debt, you know, if you don't acknowledge that there is this, this very real uh, emotional component there, you're probably not doing the best job you can to help help that user achieve the outcome that they're trying to achieve. Yeah, great. Yeah, really interesting example, uh, Mary. Any last point from you, uh, Jason? Uh, anything that you're looking out for of the coming period? Uh, I mean, certainly the the 1033 rulemaking in the U.S. that that Mary referenced. Um, I, it sounds like Mary and I will both be in Las Vegas next month for for Money 2020. Uh, where also the comptroller of the currency is speaking. So I will definitely be interested to hear his remarks. Certainly watching what's happening in the banking as a service space, both in the US from a regulatory perspective, as, as well as the UK and Europe, always top of mind. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Also looking out for that uh, as well. Uh, I'd really like to thank you for sharing your insights today, uh, Jason and Mary. I think it's been a really, uh, really fascinating conversation, especially very enlightening, I think, for a lot of Europeans that weren't also so familiar with uh, with the U.S. market. Uh, I think uh, I also learned a couple of things uh, here and there. So uh, thanks for uh, for sharing your insights. Yeah, thanks um, for having us, Don. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Looking forward to, to meeting you in person again uh, sometime soon. Uh, and I uh, would love to wish you a very nice uh, stay at Monitor 20 in Vegas. In any case, uh, perhaps we could actually team up after that to to hear about your uh, your takes from the conference. Uh, that might be a good idea. Hint there for uh, our, our, our team. Um, and uh, so thanks for now. I'd like to wish you a, a great rest of the week and um, see you next time on Breaking Banks Europe. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Don Ginsel, and see you soon. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.